0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Dr Jenny Balfour-Paul, Honorary Research Fellow at the University of Exeter and Fellow of the Royal Geographical Society and the Explorers Club, will be telling a compelling story of indigo, the world's oldest, most magical and best-loved dye. Thank you very much. Welcome, everybody, on a damp night. Can you hear me okay at the back? Is this sort of about right, or am I shouting? Okay. Um... Well, I came into Bath this morning and went to the Victoria Art Gallery and was walking around and looking at the, well, lots of paintings, especially the Gainsboroughs, everybody in their fine costumes, and just thinking that what we don't... We take for granted the fact that colour now is everywhere. But until 1900, where did all this come from? Because people tend to think, oh, natural dyes, dull colours and so on. There are Gainsborough gentlemen with bright red jackets or... Wonderful blue silk dresses for the ladies, golden waistcoats, and all this comes from natural dyes. And I think the magic of natural dyes are, um, it's incredible that nature would have provided these wonderful colors. And so you begin to think, where do they come from? And so what are the primary colors? Red, yellow, and blue. Where do the yellows come from throughout history right up until about 1900, uh, where we had many synthetic yellows? They come from almost any plant you care to think of. Um, you just pick, if you go out in the wild and pick a plant, it's nearly always indi- uh, produces a yellow of some kind or browny color. Uh, so then let's move on to the reds. Where do they come from? Well, we've got sources of red, some of them from the ground, like mad- the famous madder root, beautiful, rich brick reds. But also the insect world provides reds, the famous one being cochineal, um, And there were many other insects also that produced reds. What about blue? Where does the blue come from? Ah, well, there's only one source of natural blue in the world. And guess what that is? Uh, It is indigo. And the extraordinary thing about indigo um, is that you find it in different plant sources, you're going to see in a minute, but there is only one literally indigo molecule, which appears in different places, which provided all the blues historically. So anything that was dyed with blue. So when we talk about navy blue or royal blue or blue-collar workers or born to the blue, blue stockings, all this actually means indigo blue because it couldn't be anything else because there weren't any other blue dyes. And then when we go on to something like purple, the crossed colors, the secondary colors, so-called, um, where do the purples come from? Well, very rarely you come from shellfish purple or lichens, but most purple was actually overdyed indigo and one of the red dyes. All the good blacks, in other words, non-corrosive, were indigo and then deep indigo with dark reds and, uh, to make it look almost black. Um, and, of course, all the greens. Where does green come from? Nature's full of it. Are there any green dyes? No. How do you make green? Indigo and yellow overdyed. So um, without indigo, uh, there would have been really no blue dyes and no greens either and purples and so on. And most of the dyes, Madder, for instance, they synthesized what made that red in 1850, Indigo is so complicated, it took until 1900 to be produced commercially, and then other blue dyes came in, and we'll hear why Indigo's story was saved, um, really thanks to Levi Strauss. So we better get on with the pictures, because we don't have all that long, and I'm going to be, because Indigo is a very global subject it spans Egyptian mummies to blue jeans. It takes you in all directions, historically, ge- geographically, and so on. Uh, so it's, it might seem like kind of garbled lecture, because I want to give you a picture of the whole, of the And you could go down each al- avenue, like Alice down the rabbit hole, and find new worlds everywhere, because it takes you in all directions. So we're just going to, to skim over the top in the time we have, which isn't very long. So the next, first slide... Um, is a homage to the indigo dye gods because indigo has a very unique chemistry um, which is why in fact indigo his story has been saved out of all the blue dyes it doesn't behave like the others there isn't really time to get into it but it will be touched on as we go through and it's complicated to dye therefore it's always been a specialist dye and when you die with indigo, you normally pray to the dye gods in some way. These are Japanese. These are paper kimonos dipped into the dye vat by the Japanese dyers. And each year, coming through the post, winging its way, is an indigo dye god. I get from Japan. I like the idea of a god coming through the post. This will link up with the last slide, as you'll hear, you'll see. So bear that in mind, indigo and god. You can't really get higher than that goes with a story in St. Paul's at the moment, doesn't it? Um, so this is how, it, then you start thinking of your own, like, sometimes you get asked, how did it all start? And you think, oh, that's a good question. How far back do you go? Um, let's go back to the hippie trail. Don't you think this is classic? Anybody my age, <laughs> um, this kind of sums up the hippie trail. just been right through um, uh, t- as far as Delhi. This is sleeping on a rooftop in Delhi with my companions. Next one. And just to say, I think the the lure of the East, the interest in colors and so on, I think it stems back certainly here to my teenagers, if not before. I was privileged to stand on the head of the Buddha of Bamiyan before, of course, it was blown up on Easter Sunday. I won't say the date, so long ago. Well, the hippie trail, you can work it out. And actually, all, all around his head were beautiful paintings. So I wept when I heard they'd been blown up. Next one. And this, so then I went to live in the Middle East I mean I'm jumping quickly uh, and in the Middle East I wanted to go through the desert and find people weaving and wearing wonderful costumes all linked to their lifestyle I love the way Indigo's stories all link up with people's actual social background and geography and history all, everything's interwoven and I always loved different subjects and <coughs> Indigo kind of brought them all together so I lived in the Middle East for many years and got very interested in textiles next one that's Jerash in Jordan, and this is Hama in Syria, where a lot of trouble is going on at the moment. Next one, the wonderful water wheel. Um, we lived in North Africa with my husband and I and did a wonderful trip to the Tassili Mountains of Algeria and spent a week walking behind a blue man. I think that's actually fake indigo, but the point is the blue men of the Sahara were clad in indigo in the famous Tuareg. Uh, turbans, our turbans are indigo, so we spent a week maybe that 's what 's really sparked me off walking behind indigo costume for a week in the mountains of southern Algeria, next one, uh, and then another trip in Morocco, looking at look at the colors this is an earth color from a stone. And this is interesting because these ladies in the Atlas Mountains, if you have got less money, you've got the more earth local colours. If you can afford it, you have the indigo stripes. So um, indigo costs more because it was traded more widely and was more complicated to dye. So there's a sort of economic significance to indigo as well. Next one. So then it really started for me when I came back to live in England. I got all this sort of general interest. I was doing the most horrendous batiks and selling them. I hope I never see them in anybody's house today, but you've got to start somewhere. And using synthetic dyes. And I started working. I was in the Devon Guild of Craftsmen by then. I started working with Susan Bosentz, who was a rather well-known fabric printer and dyer. And I did my first dive out in this courtyard in Devon. And got very hooked on indigo because she used to clear all the other colors and have a special week for indigo dyeing because it is special and different, and that got me hooked next one and at the same time as this was going on, uh, I went my husband was organizing a conference to the two Yemens as they were then south and uh, south and north, which is now one because so it 's an old atlas, and I accompanied him and uh, and it was when I came back and put up an exhibition and put up a spectacular indigo dress that the embassy had sent. I didn't see any dyes there, but I, when I got back, I learned that, in fact, we'd missed the dyers. And that indigo dyeing can be going on in Yemen for about 2,500 BC until about 1960, when there were 150 dyes in Zabid here on the Red Sea coastal plain. And there were two dye workshops left in uh, in the early 1980s that's how quickly a tradition goes and this is what started the whole research actually at that time recording a tradition that was dying out, excuse the pun, and it's only now, sort of 25 years later, that The reason I'm still in indigo is because it's changed from being a recording exercise of of a history thing to I'm now working with people in sustainable fields who are looking at natural dyes. I'm using indigo for education. So the whole story's changed to something very modern and and forward-looking, which is why I say I'm still in indigo to some extent. Um, Next one. So this was the first field trip, and it was Susan Besant, my mentor, who actually was responsible for me going to Yemen. Because well, she said, you've got to go and record it, Jenny, because she said, if you don't record it uh, and it dies out, it can never be revived. And I didn't think that would ever happen, a revival, how wrong I was and how right she was. I said I had no money and she told me to apply for a grant. And, of course, she was on the committee and I didn't know that till she died. And suddenly through the post came a check saying... Here's a check for, uh, for fieldwork in Yemen. I hadn't done any fieldwork before. I mean, it's incredible how one thing led to another. So I found myself in Sana, the capital of Yemen, um, looking at these amazing um, shawls here. I've brought one, actually, which linked up with a whole trade route to India. I didn't even know that then. And the extraordinary, um, unique veils they were wearing. Next one. And down we went through these terrifying hairpin bends with drugged up drivers, you know, taking your life in your hands, I have to say. Down to the Red Sea coastal plain of Zabid, my favorite town almost in the world, um, walking down this dusty street. And I must say Yemen have been banished plastic bags since then. It's about time we did the same. Walk down an alleyway, next one, and into this courtyard. And in the courtyard, I found this man doing indigo dyeing. has become my iconic picture, rather, which I show in every lecture, because this was the first sight I saw of somebody traditionally dyeing indigo. And it was then, I think, at that moment, I thought, gosh, you know, what's he doing? Why is he taking them up and down? Where does the indigo come from? Who wears it? Question, question, question. And so we sort of sat down in a haphazard way, making notes and getting interested. Next one. Uh, and I did another trip to South Yemen actually later, um, the Hadramaut Valley which I always think if one's going to die somewhere that would be, I mean D-I-E that would be um, I always choose place in the world where it would be lovely just to, one's life to end and the Hadramaut is nearly top of the list it's just a magical valley in southern Yemen or oh, Yemen is it, Freya Stark loved it too and these women are wearing, half of them are wearing indigo dresses and half of them are wearing modern cloth, there's a transition going on, next one so um, I came back, I did this bit of field work and then came back to UK and someone said, well, what are you going to do with it? I said, I haven't a clue. She said, well, you better give a lecture at Cambridge University, um, at the Arabian Studies Seminar. I said, you've got to be joking. Um, I'm just a dyer and a mum living in Devon. Anyway, this, I, was, I ended up giving a lecture and that was another pivotal moment because the man in the chair was a professor of, very eminent professor who'd done his PhD in Islamic textiles. I didn't know that. And he got up publicly afterwards and said, don't stop at Yemen, you must do the whole of the Middle East. Um, And so suddenly I found myself trying to record the Middle East because I'd been told to. (laughs) And it became a PhD and that was published. And then the British Museum said, would I do the whole world? So this is how it started. Um, So I just came back and got interested in the history and found out that indigo was, this is the piece from the British Museum, 2,500 B.C., is it? 2,000 B.C., where indigo is being used as the first color for prestigious mummy wrappings. And it has to be indigo and no other dye because indigo sits on the surface of fibers instead of being absorbed within them. And due to its chemistry, therefore, which there isn't time to go into looking at the clock, um, indigo is therefore you, you can use it to dye any fiber. And that's one of its many secrets of its success other dyes very often will dye the protein fibers, i.e. wool and silk very easily, but find the the cellulose fibers, such as hemp and cotton and linen, much harder to dye. Um, So, its chemistry is actually central to its importance. It took me years to realize that. I'm rather slow, I think. I thought it was a sort of art historical subject, and I realized after about five years, I was really studying chemistry without being a chemist. But I I work with a lot of chemists, and it's the whole, when you go deeply into the chemistry, it's totally fascinating. They're still researching it now. Next one. Oh, sorry. Can we go back a second? Um, so, and on the right is about um, uh, well, this off the internet. It's Maya blue, the blue. So the, you've got the ancient the pyramids of the Egyptians with their mummy wrappings. You've got the Mayans and uh, the Aztecs using indigo to make their famous blue paint. Because indigo's secret also is that although it's a dye, it is also a pigment. And I'll show you that in a minute, um, unlike most other dyes. So you can mix it with chalks and get a paint, which is absolutely permanent. Next one. And then I discovered that really the world's oldest blue jeans... This is the world's oldest carpet, the Paziric carpet, 5th century BC. And the rider on the horse, this is a detail from the border, is really wearing blue jeans. Because (laughs) indigo is both practical and exotic so we have royal blue of the silks but we also have as i say the blue collar workers very practical for G- for this horse rider as it was for all the service uniforms of europe um and you can see here the classic case this is armenian cochineal the other dye very fascinating dye stuff linked to, related to co- um related to the other cochineal and kermes and all the insect dyes Look, it's changing. It's going brown and so on. The yellow dyes are changing. There's only one dye that never, ever changes. And again, it's indigo. All the others you have to analyze to see what they are because they change over time. Indigo can't lose its blueness. That's why we love it for genes. Next one. So looking again at historical pieces, this is in the Louvre. It's 4th century, 3rd century. Um, a Roman hanging um, from an Egyptian temple. On this side, this is a metropolitan museum, I think, uh, in America, and it shows how indigo is used for greens... But to do with physics this time and wavelengths, the yellows fade. Yellows always fade quite quickly. So you end up so often in these uh, old textiles, it's a medieval tapestry hanging, with um, the, what were green, now going to the blue, because the blue is so stable, and then the reds are stable. So this was, would have been dyed with the blue, the European blue, which was woad, which we're about to see in a minute. Next one. Um, here we are. So, The secret of indigo's many, one of its many secrets of its success is, as I mentioned, that it magically, although it's invisible in the plant, the plant is green, where's the indigo? Can't see it. Um, Within these leaves, amazingly, of this cruciferous plant related to sort of spinach and cabbage, is the um, precursor to indigo, indigo, invisible indigo, indigo white. Go to India, where there's a tropical indigophora plant, and some species of indigophora have the same. in them, the same precursor to the blue. Go to Japan, Japanese indigo, same thing. It's really magical. So here's the woad plant, next one, in its first year. That's in the second year. And if you go to southern France to a place called Lecture, which is near the place called Condom, where condoms were invented. Did you know that? By a priest. Um, I mean, I say that because it's a more famous place to remember. It's very near. This is the mill where they've decided to repaint the shutters with blue and did their research and discovered that in, in the medieval times they would take the scum off a woad vat, which was effectively a blue paint, mix it with chalk and so on and make a paint. And if you now go down to Luxor, you can actually visit this wonderful woad shop, Bleur de Luxor, where they're making products out of indigo from woad. Next one. So that's a great revival going on. They're not, however, doing it as it was down in the Middle Ages which was to, and Somerset, right near here, Glastonbury and so on, um, the English story too, the European world plant was turned into indigo by making a leaf compost. So they'd crush up the leaves and then dry them on racks and then hammer them up and, and make a, a compost, which was wonderful for dying, but they hadn't extracted the indigo, it was part of the leaf. Next one. And this is Japanese indigo growing in my garden with madder. Um, same thing in Japan. Next one. They make a leaf compost, and, and they, make, they have to get the temperature right. He's pouring on rice wine uh, to put the baby to bed, as they call it, and they're nurturing the indigo compost. Uh, and after several months, they get the perfect compost for dying. Next one. And the same thing in Mali. Um, she's also making a compost, this is research I did in West Africa where there isn't time to go into all these stories, she was a wonderful lady next one, so that's fine, that's an indigo compost and it's fine for dyeing locally, but if you want to trade with indigo then you need to extract the blue, not keep it as a compost but extract it so it becomes in effect a pigment and I brought a piece along because I can't travel without a piece of indigo and it's almost like a stone. It's rock hard. You can come and feel it afterwards. And this is brilliant for trade because it's low bulk, high value, and incredibly durable. And this is El Salvador, a revival project, because um, after the Middle Ages, when the sea routes were discovered to India, woad was used in Europe to make indigo. Fine, it went with the wool industry. Then in the, the sea routes were discovered to India. And coming into Europe then were Indian spices, indigo being the, one of the spices, and then, of course, all the indigo cloth, chintz and cottons and things, which needed a stronger dye vats. So you get a big changeover, it's too long to go into this story, but it's a very fascinating industrial story of the woad declining and indigo coming from India um, and the dye vats changing to accommodate dissolving this indigo lump, and being able to dye cotton, which needs a stronger dye that. It's a bit complicated and technical. So this is, uh, and then, of course, then the colonial powers conquered, as it were, took over the Caribbean and Central America, and made their own plantations of indigo, virtually under slave labor well it was slave labor and now it's being revived in the same places but of course not with slave labor providing employment actually after the war in places like El Salvador this is the Indigofera plant uh, so named by Linnaeus because by that time um, the Indian plant was the one that was producing the dye of trade so it's not the only indigo plant, next one but it's the main one and this is the revival going on, you soak the indigo leaves, you can see they're still green you soak them, you take them out of the water. You don't need them anymore because the water has split the glucose off from the indigo white and it's left the invisible indigo in the water. And then the magic thing happens. You add oxygen by whisking or stirring or whatever. And after a few hours, the oxygen links with the indigo, invisible indigo molecule and bang. It's, you get the blue foam and that means you're getting your indigo and it's just oxygen and indigo white make indigo blue, it's absolutely magical uh, and then you leave this to settle and it, goes, it turns into a blue clay after a couple of days at the bottom of the tank which you can then dry and cut up and so on to get this lump and then that will last for hundreds of years it's very magical chemistry kind of simple but complicated at the same time, very contradictory next one <laughs> And here's a revival in El Salvador using buckets to add the, it doesn't matter, so you'll start, this eventually will be dark blue or bright, bright much bluer, and then it, will, then it will stop. Next one. And here's Yemen doing the same thing with a whisk, which I brought one home, I've got it at home now. Somebody thought it was a telev- some primitive television aerial over my shoulder on the aeroplane, made from palm fronds. And here he's using dried leaves, he's soaked them overnight, he's taken the leaves out, he's whisking the water. Um, That's after soaking, by the way, then the leaves have come out, he adds oxygen, and then the same thing happens. Next one. So people all over the world, and this is southwest China, have discovered the same chemistry. Sometimes it's by transmission of knowledge, sometimes it's happened spontaneously, which is an incredible thought in itself. Next one. And as I mentioned, it became a huge colonial slave product along with coffee and sugar and so on. And it's got a great sort of, I'm not great in the nice sense, great in the large sense, historical, um, uh, well history of its, of its use as a commodity especially um, the 18th and 19th centuries 17th, 18th, 19th when all the armies of Europe were fighting each other the whole time and, uh, and you can imagine Prussian blue and the, the British army with their blue trousers the navy, every, all the service uniforms French, navy, French armies all wearing indigo huge demand for indigo let alone from all the other reasons next one Uh, just to talk about trade in and out of London. Next one. Uh, This is interesting. This has led me to do some research. I've been working with a shipwreck expert. Uh, There's a great time to go into this, but when I was lecturing about indigo trade at the British Library a few years ago, East India Company Trade, I mentioned that I'd heard that indigo, and I believed it, would survive under the sea from shipwrecks. And a man came up afterwards, bounding up the steps, said, oh, are you interested in shipwrecks? I said, yes. He said, I'm a shipwreck expert. I have got some, I know about some indigo down in the Caribbean. I don't know whether I can get you any or not. Would you be interested? Interested? (laughs) So anyway, I did an indigo exhibition in 2007 and blow me halfway through the exhibition. I got a eureka email saying some indigo has come from the Caribbean. And this, this is a Spanish galleon, that's a fanciful picture of her, one of the most famous galleons of all time. She was the flagship of the fleet, um Philip the Philip's fleet going to Spain. Uh it's a very famous story of this particular wreck of the fleet, and she sank with a huge cargo of treasure, but also in a very, very big cargo of indigo. All the records are in Seville. And the divers one day got their hands turned blue when they were diving for um for pieces of eight pirates' coins, so-called, and they found these mass of pieces of eight silver coins coated with indigo, and all the coral and everything on the seabed was all blue, and eventually some came to me. I did dye tests, and that's some of these, in in this corner here, that's where I I dye test. You couldn't tell that wasn't done today, could you? And the ship sank in 1641. And it was quite a moment, um, actually using the dye and knowing that the dye had been made on a slave plantation in 1640. So it took me about three months to steel myself to even do dye tests because it was so—it um, was a privilege and it was also nerve-wracking. I didn't want to spoil a small amount of dye I had or get it wrong. Next one. Uh, so with the slavery story, I did some research going up the West African. Up, this is up to the Senegal River. And this was rather extraordinary because I went up the Senegal River and found the last oasis or town called Barkal on the borders of Mali, still using natural indigo there. Next one. Looked, went into the courtyard where they were doing the dyeing and asked about the symbols on the cloths. And to my sort of horror and frisson, she said, Oh, this, this means this, this means that. This one here means slaves' shackles. And on their cloth, even today, they're putting in the symbols of the slavery that's so much in their memory. So um, the cloths are very full of symbolic meanings. Next one. Uh, So when the the European powers lost their colonies in um, in the West Indies, it was back to India. And Clive had conquered Bengal. And this is an indigo factory in Bengal, because the Indians, are, usually when the colonial powers went and produced indigo or whatever, it was already been used locally, of course. Um, it was just exploited by the Western colonial powers. Bengal, at its peak in the sort of mid-19th century, indigo formed uh, over 50% of the exports going through Calcutta. And it's a fantastic story of rivalry because the government tended to back the opium growers with vested interests because the indigo planters were uh, independent. So they were always at loggerheads. And the whole story is actually, doesn't, the British don't come off very well. <laughs> it's either to do with opium or it's to do with exploiting people to produce indigo. And either way, the story is um, pretty cataclysmic. It led, and eventually, of course, to the... Um, well the Indian mutiny but then there was another indigo mutiny in 1859 when the workers rose up and were fed up with being forced to grow indigo instead of rice so this is a factory in Bengal same thing happening indigo coming in being soaked in these tanks the leaves are removed and people stood in the tanks and added oxygen can't be very good for them Um, and then it was boiled to make a good quality next one and if you go to the Economic Department of Kew Gardens, a wonderful museum there, like Kew, you, you'll see all these tablets of indigo, how they came in stamped from India at that time. Next one. And the book we just touched on briefly, this, the manuscript that's now sort of at a most critical stage between agents and publishers, it might completely bomb. (laughs) I say my forthcoming book. It might be my forthcoming self-published book. (laughs) Who knows? And it's about this young man who was in Bengal in the mid-19th century. And I I have to say he was very critical of the way the workers were treated. Very interesting records saying we're exploiting them too much, we're not paying enough, and so on. I like him. He's a nice chap. Um, Next one. And these are his journals. And this is in one of the fine indigo houses, rather incongruously in the middle of Bengal, with this great park, deer park, as if you're in the middle of Derbyshire or somewhere. But that's what the British did when they traveled. So took Britain with them. Next one. And this is what led me to his journals, the word indigo. This is a self-portrait. Indigo plant, there's him on the right. Indigo plant is after Tiffin. Good day's work on the indigo plantations, and they're now having a smoke under the punker which is being pulled by the Pankawala, and the writing's all down here. Next one. and fi- This is his um, map of indigo and sugar plantations in Bengal, and my research with him started 10 years ago, when I took his map and tried to find the plantations. Quite a hair-raising trip, as it turned out, because um, the Bang- this is now Bengal and Bangladesh, and everything's up near the border, and it wasn't as easy as all that. Um, had all my luggage stolen for a start and so on, but it serves me right, because I was told not to go there, because it's not very, it's, not very, it's a bit hairy near the border but, um, so what took him about three hours by horseback took me about a week to getting between the two countries, next one. Um, oh, that's a final one picture from his journals, they're full of illustrations rather quirky, that's the postman having a rest under a tree <laughs> next one uh, um, wonderful bit of field work was in southwest China um, Guizhou province, which I can't find now, flew in from Hong Kong, are up here. Um, next one. Just when China was opening up to the west, gosh, it was so beautiful. Oh. All these little terraces, some of them planted with their local indigo plant. Next one. Oh, I could see the pictures there, couldn't I? Um, and this is um, in a village where they're making indigo in just in part of village life. There's the indigo pot with the geese surrounding it. Same thing happening. Next one. Taking the leaves out, using a gourd to add oxygen. Um, And just daily life in these villages there. Mind you, they're very remote villages. I mean, you don't find indigo everywhere now in China. But it was very iconic at the time, um, which is why Mao chose blue for um, the Mao suit under communism because it meant the mark of sort of local people the peasants wore indigo practically just like jeans, next one and there she's made her, this is the indigo plant there called strobilantis flacidifolius although the name's changed now Uh, she's been re-dyeing all the village aprons that day you can re-dip things in indigo. I do that at home as well. And here's a basket of the clay-like paste I talked about, which she's not going to dry off because she's not going to trade it. She will keep that damp and do the indigo dyeing when she feels like it. Next one. So all that business, really, is to show you that you make indigo, and it's got this great trade to make this commodity. And this is it, the lump of indigo. However, you want to dye with it. What happens? How do you make a dye vat? You've got to reverse the chemistry, if you can believe. So, you have to get an alkaline medium uh, and something that will feed the bacteria, basically. So, in this case, this is a, this is a natural dye vat in Yemen. You've got the indigo, which you've got to dissolve. You've got natural soda, which is alkaline. You've got dates and aloe to feed the bacteria. This is a fermentation vat. Of course, um, now we do vats with synthetic chemicals, but the same thing happens. If it's synthetic indigo or natural indigo, it makes no difference to the chemistry because synthetic indigo is the same chemistry, I mean, the same molecule as natural indigo, and it behaves the same way. So in a denim factory today making jeans, the yarn has to do the same thing, the same chemistry goes on. So um, what happens is that the indigo is turned back. Next one, into, oh, this is just to talk about blue nails and dyes, and this is just to show you two dyes with their blue hands. Next, that's in Oman, and that's in Tunisia. Next one, what happens? Uh, this is a natural dye a the synthetic dye that, Is that if it's going to be all right for dyeing, it mustn't be blue. You must have got rid of the blue. The blue has to be converted back to its non-blue form, which isn't actually white, but it's sort of greeny color in a fermentation vat, and a bit clearer yellow in a synthetic vat. And you put the cloth in, and when you pull it out, it is, as you see, yellow. And as the oxygen hits it, so this is just coming out... And then it turns blue before your eyes. And this is where the whole mystique of indigo comes from, unlike any other dye. Most dyes are, you know, you boil them in natural madder roots or something. You've got a big pot, it's boiling away, it looks red. You put the yarn in, it comes out red. Indigo is cool, which means you can use things like hot batik and so on in it because you're, it's not boiled in. Uh, and it's not blue. So you've got this whole extraordinary chemistry going on, um, which makes it you have to learn how to handle it and get the balance of ingredients right. That's why it was a specialist dye. Uh, and you've got this complete magic where you've got a change of colour due to the oxygen turning it from yellow back into blue again. Hence, it's extraordinary mystique and many, many stories about it. Usually, if it doesn't work, um, women are blamed. Fertile women very often. Oh, somebody fertile's come too near the vat, they say. In a way, that's because it is a fertile, the fermentation vat is a fertile thing. So you're blaming someone else's fertility for the fertile vat dying off. There's many, many stories. This is in southwest China. Look at the village. Di- look what she's wearing, traditional jacket and dyeing lengths and lengths of cloth for the whole village. Next one. And this is also in China. Incredible scene to see today, just traditionally in a village, going on as it has done for centuries. Very unusual now. Next one. Although the revival's going on. So you can have your plain blue cloth, and then you've got your blue-collar workers, your working clothes, or you can do things with it. Uh, And one thing you can do is make your cloth shiny. And in this case, the cloth is being calendared um, and, and made shiny with a rocking stone. Next one. Uh, Or you can beat it with a hammer, or you can pour things on top to make it almost like an anorak. So this is um, woven cloth dyed in indigo with uh, bark gum. I had a wonderful correspondence with the then president of Kew Gardens. He wrote a book about Gillian Prance, Prance about the uses of bark, and he left this one out. And I said, there's a new use of bark you don't know about, which is to soak it and make a kind of gum and pouring over the indigo cloth. Next one. And then, on the right and the left, this is the same village in China, or nearby village, uh, you end up with this extraordinary shiny look. So the indigo looks like carbon paper, uh, which then is waterproof. An amazing sight. Look at this lady coming back with her puttees and her skirt and her jacket from the market, indigo bag, the whole caboodle. Quite an extraordinary field trip, really. And this man was so proud, proud of his shiny turban and his shiny jacket And it's still going on, but less and less in this very remote area of Guizhou province in southwest China. Next one. Uh, And interestingly, because I'd done fieldwork already in Yemen, and I knew about the veils of the Yemenis, not knowing I was going to find turbans in southwest China that were also shiny. But in this case, they use a stone and they rub neat indigo to get this sheen. And they want it to go on their faces because indigo is also medicinal. Uh, that's another. You could give a whole lecture on indigo's medicine, indigo's paint, indigo in art. You could go anywhere with it. Uh, on the right is a typical classic. I didn't take that picture. Or this one. These are professional photographers. Uh, the blue man, the men of the Sahara. And these two are linked because... This Islam took the tradition of the clothing tradition. You can see the way it moved through North Africa and then down into West Africa. With Islam comes this tradition of covering yourself with indigo and wearing the indigo turban. Next one. Um, So going back, this is going back to southwest China to look at the costumes again. Next one. Going up the river, um, because it's the only way to go. We might go back a second. The only way to get to this village is by water. And we arrived at the village, and there we saw just suddenly, you know, indigo cloths hanging up in people's amazing houses. It was a most wonderful place, and the people were lovely. No language in common, but it doesn't really matter somehow. Um, next one. And there was the dyer who'd just come down to the river. She washed the ginger for her lunch, and then she washed the indigo cloth, wearing this spectacular jacket. Um, The field trips have been amazing. You spend a lot of time with people in their houses and villages just talking and comparing notes. And the hospitality is extraordinary. And their level of um, skill and knowledge is incredible as well. Next one. And what they do. Uh, On the right is um, the sort of prototype of the blue jacket. Classic working jacket. It's been shined but it's been worn a bit. You can see how the shine wears off. Um, He's caulking a boat. And this side, luckily, we were in a closed area, so we weren't allowed out of our bus, which was back there. But luckily, there was a well, not luckily, but there was a crash. I mean, it wasn't nobody was hurt, but it meant we had to be able to walk through the villages. And look what these look what these girls are wearing. These are their village clothes. If you put those on a catwalk, this is Issey and the sort of standard. You could just put them on in Paris, and they would be worth thousands. And this is, of course, where the inspiration comes from, from people like Miyake. and People pay more for patched clothes, but in these cultures, they pay more for new clothes. So it's, it's a sort of the reverse. It's very interesting with indigo, how in cultures where it's common, they want it dark, shiny, new, and modern. Whereas in the West, we want it old, faded, patched, and we pay more for shredded jeans and so on. Next one. <laughs> So here's two uh, old ladies wearing these beautiful jackets, um, indigo dyed, which have been well rinsed in order to put this colored embroidery on top. Next one. And so this is the sleeve from a new jacket, highly valued. When the jacket's worn a lot and gets old, they dip it back in the indigo dye vat, and then you get the look on the right. So actually, you can see the dragon's face here, the dragon's body, and the dragon's there as well. This is his head. Um, and the point is that whenever I show these pieces in the West, everybody loves that one. <laughs> the British Museum wanted to put that on the front cover of the book in the first edition. I, wouldn't, I said no because I didn't want the book to be culture specific. But in, in the, where it comes from, this is the one everybody wants. It's new and it's shiny and bright colors. Nobody wants that old one that's been dipped in the indigo bag. So the aesthetic thing of indigo is also another fascinating subject. Next one. Uh, And this, I think, staying in China, uh, there's a whole link between this. The love of blue and white porcelain was coming in the same time as the way of printing indigo with batiks and so on to get that whole blue and white aesthetic. And I think it links up with the China. Next one. And here we are using now techniques to get this reverse technique. So, as I mentioned before, you can do amazing batiks. This is Southwest China again. So by using wax or another resist, you can make amazing intricate patterns. Dye it in indigo and then put more wax on to get the pale blue and then go on dyeing. The skill of these people to produce with the simplest homemade tools, these beautifully exquisite worked jackets, is um, breathtakingly beautiful, actually, and complicated. Next one. And here in Thailand, it's the same thing, um, but slightly cruder, using wax to make a resist. Next one. Uh, and back to China again, the same thing, using, doing these amazing resist patterns, um, with in shiny indigo jacket. Look at this with a beautiful edge. I mean, just astonishing. Next one. And this also is in southwest China where we, I went to a market and the lady was wearing this costume and said I could photograph her. And she realized I was looking at her clothes. And she made me stop, and she turned her skirt around because she was protecting the batik work and wearing it inside out for markets. And then she'd wear it that way around for the festival. Um, So you can see how... Oh, it's a wonderful field trip, that one. They all were on their way. Next one. Uh, And this is now in um, northwest India, in Gujarat and Rajasthan, where they make a mud paste uh, to make a resist. So we're all trying to do the same thing, trying to resist the make the patterns with a resist in order to be able to dye from the dye vat. Because you can't very easily print with indigo. It's all, almost impossible because of its chemistry. has been done, but that's another whole story. So basically, you do resist techniques to reserve what you don't want to be blue, and then you dye it. So this is using mud. Next one. Uh, and again, so you put the mud on. And then you've dyed an in indigo, more mud being printed. And then when all that's washed off, there'll be different shades of indigo. There'll be white and pale blue on dark. Next one. And here's a piece being dyed again with all the other colors are on. And the mud is over the top of them. And she's dyeing this piece of cloth in Bagra in Rajasthan. Next one. I told you we were gadding around a bit. Isn't that amazing? That's just using their leftover pieces to cover the Volkswagen van. Um, LAUGHTER you can sell that in, oh, I can, Chandy Chowk in Bath. Next one. Um, this is Buj in, um, uh, in, right, almost in, the, almost in the Sindh Desert on the borders of Pakistan, where they had an earthquake after I went. I put this on in homage, really, to these amazingly resilient, wonderful people. I actually did research with the people who made this incredible two-sided um, printed cloth. That is two-sided. The black you can see of the black and the red. These patterns go right back to the Middle Ages. The black and the red are printed first, and then mud is put over them, and then they're dyed. It's dyed in indigo. It's a fantastic skill to do a piece like that. Next one. Uh, and there is the piece before uh, with the resist still on, and there you take it off, and you get these amazing patterns, all done with um, incredibly complicated techniques of printing and resisting. Next one. And it's called ajrak because it has blue in it, which is an Arabic word for blue. Uh, And then this is how it's worn, with a skirt and a jacket. And the ones with blue are much more valuable than they're called ajrak because it's complicated to get the blue mixed with the other colors. How are we doing for time? Okay, next one. Uh, So we're just going to whiz through. Um, um, I mentioned I went to South to um, West Africa, Senegal and Mali, just near south of Timbuktu, a place called the Dogon area. Can't see it now. Um, Oh, there's Bamako. So it's up here. Um, Next one, to do field work. Because so much work had been done in Nigeria already and I'd been given Nigerian cloths and slides of Nigeria in nineteen sixty, um, that this was well known. I tend to do feel that hadn't been done before and otherwise I mean the whole world you'd do it for a hundred lifetimes. So when the British Museum said, Would I cut, take on the world? I actually said I wanted it should have multiple authors and they wouldn't let me. They said they prefer single authors because multiple ones argue. <laughs> And actually being a single author meant you could compare and contrast across the world, which is much more fun than doing it country by country and more suitable for indigo. Next one. Uh, This is Cameroon. So the same tradition here with um, the the resist and the indigo dying. Um, Next one. This is the mosque of Jenne near the Dogon area. Next one. And the reason I went to Dogon area, which is famous for its masks and traditions, is because the oldest archaeological textiles in West Africa were discovered in the cliffs here. Extraordinary place, absolutely extraordinary place. And just north of it is Timbuktu. Next one. And here beneath these towering cliffs, these very poor people, it was quite distressing, really. Um, they're still doing indigo dyeing in these old pots as they've done for centuries. Next one. And here, to show the social significance of this cloth, I said, why is this lady wearing this smart skirt, and the others are wearing very plain ones? And she's the medicine woman, which means she performs also circumcision on the girls in the village, which is still going on. So it's a more knowledge than I wanted to know. Uh, sometimes you should ask so many questions. Next one. That was exhibited. Anybody saw the Indigo exhibition I did in 2007? That was in the exhibition. Um, and another way is to resist things before you actually weave. And this is a wonderful, I love this wall hanging. It looks like illicit smoking. I bet it's opium. Um, it's on a temple. <laughs> um, and here they're wearing ikat. the traditional skirts you find in Indonesia, all that part of the world, with the red is dye. it's a root like madder, and the blue is indigo. And when you combine them, you get a kind of purple. Um, in fact, I've got a little tiny piece here if you want to look afterwards. Next one. And in this case, you tie in the yarn before you weave to get the pattern. So if, what's blue here with this plastic string, that will be white. And then you dye it in the dye vat, and then you get... That will be white, and the white will be blue, if you see what I mean. And that's, that's what she's wearing. This is actually um, on the borders of Laos uh, in Thailand, eastern Thailand. Next one. And this is in El Salvador. So it just shows how these techniques and these ways of working... Uh, this is what was so fascinating, to find in different parts of the world, different ways of solving problems, um, especially to do with the indigo dying and how they used it sort of cross-culturally was really um, fascinating because it, it depended on whether it's a, a transmission of knowledge and influences or whether it was a local thing without outside influences. And uh, all this sort of whole thing to think about uh, has been an extraordinary journey, really, unending. So she's doing a beautiful ECAP piece. In El Salvador. Actually, sorry, this is Ecuador, not El Salvador. Next one. Uh, so this piece here comes from a trip I went made to Sumba Island. Here, terrifying aeroplane. <laughs> My daughter's not frightened of flying. She said, "Look, Mum, the doors are held together with strict with sellotape." <laughs> it was the local plane going to East Timor, but everybody takes it, so it must be safe. Uh, next one, and. Um, the whole tradition in Indonesia, there's a, the Dutch in this case, I talked about the British in Bengal, the Dutch in Indonesia, in Java and so on, produced indigo. This is a lovely piece also in queue of traded indigo from Java. And so today I found still the tradition going on. This is the village dyer in um, Sumba Island. Next one where indigo was traditionally used, not for tourists and people like me, but to produce great burial cloths for burials, Um, dyed with indigo and merinda and uh, with white patterns, and they're never seen because they would wrap an important corpse with maybe 30 cloths and then bury them and worship the ancestors in these amazing houses. There's the ancestral tombs down the village street. You really keep a close eye on your ancestors. Next one. And here, amazingly, was the person who was tying the threads, the most knowledgeable on the island. I've forgotten his name just now. And he was in the middle of doing a piece. He was doing four pieces for a Japanese businessman. And three were sold. And they do four at a time. And one wasn't. And I saw this as it was there, half done. And I bought it like that. because I said, I'm going to have an exhibition one day. I paid for it, thought, I'll never see that again, you know, middle of a village on an island in Indonesia, half finished, and you know what it's going to look like. And blow me, six months later, it arrived in England, and a beautiful piece. Next one. This is a detail from it, and this was in one, the centerpiece of the Indigo exhibition, which I keep mentioning, in 2007, done by the Whitworth Art Gallery, and um, I, it's, in the, it's now in the collection, if anybody wants to ever see it, and it depicts the last funeral of the last king of all This is a detail. Beautiful piece. And you imagine that to get the red, you have to tie it. You have to tie the whites and tie the reds and then keep tying and untying in order to get red and blue and that purpley color together. That is like having a computer in your head. Amazing skill. Next one. And here is the village dyer. Um, My guide called Freddy telling the dyer that blue jeans were made with the same indigo as the indigo she used for her dyeing for her ECATS. And she just couldn't believe that. That was too big a cultural sort of thought. She thought she was the only indigo dyer in the world <laughs> I and mean, couldn't believe that jeans were made from the same dye. Next one. How long have we got about two minutes. Um, I mentioned indigo's used for paint. Um, here's a Quran of the tenth century, very famous blue Quran. Uh, and again, it you can't disentangle indigo's The fact that it's the way you dye, you dip with it, so it actually strengthens the cloth because it's building up on layers. Um, it's also been used medicinally I won't even go into that but it's been proved why it's medicinal it's antiseptic so if you use it for something like a manuscript you're protecting the paper preserving it, keeping the insects away and it's beautiful so you can't disentangle that sort of aesthetics from the practicality I love that it's a sort of permanent mystery which can't be sorted out because it doesn't work like that with gold writing on top how beautiful is that next one uh, and again, this lady is using indigo on her face to beautify her face before wedding in South Yemen. Next one, we're going to whiz through now. Blue beard um, dyed his. The aristocracy of Persia used to dye their beards with indigo and henna to make them again lustrous and probably keep the nits away. So it's medicinal and beautiful, and it keeps your beard dark. You you never see a Taliban with a grey beard they, they always dye their beards and this is why you can still buy in um, Islamic shops you can still buy indigo hair dye next one uh, and this is the, uh, just touching on the, the blueprint tradition of Eastern Central Europe uh, there will be a show in the Devon Guild of Craftsmen in March of blueprint um, this is, links up with the whole Indian influence coming into Europe there's no time to talk about that story next one Oh, just to show I can do it myself. That's my geese and a piece I did. Next one. So we're going to the final final bit of the lecture now. Um, this is last summer, dyeing with indigo, homegrown weld to make the green, uh, and some cochineal I was given from Mexico. So it was quite fun to see the washing line covered in those colors. Natural dyes, all of them. Who says natural dyes are dull colors? Next one. And I did a project with the the Eden Project. We used indigo as one of the plant stories. It was the most popular of all the plant stories that year. So that was nice. Next one. Uh, And this is, I mentioned the indigo exhibition. This was a piece specially done for one of the galleries, a modern piece, which went on to the Textile Museum in Washington, D.C., done by a Japanese artist um, called Shindo, Hiroyuki Shindo. Wonderful piece, took up the whole gallery. Next one. And this also was the, in the exhibition. It was the story of jeans from cheap. These were the Gap jeans that year to, I um, can't think of the name of the designer, famous designer, where they're now laser printing the fading on. I mean, <laughs> so they're faking the fading. I mean, it was just comic almost. Next one, how fashion uses indigo. This has just been discovered. He's an Italian painter called The Master of the Blue Jeans. Nobody knows who he was. He's uh, he's the same time as people like Tintoretto Very good painter Then a friend, I just discovered him When some, a friend of mine came to a meal And I thought, just said just hold it there by my garage door Because I just like the fact That these blue jackets are still being worn Practically today just the same way And this by the way has been analysed It's painted with indigo paint And the fabric is actually As it were denim because it's a twill With the indigo in it So they wear, this is the uh, 18th century Next one uh, blue jeans, right, last tiny bit, so I mentioned the story of blue jeans. and Now you see why indigo is used for genes and why the story of indigo was saved, although it 's synthetic indigo mainly, because of the practicality, because it keeps its color, because it dies in layers. So when you rub down through indigo, you get always different blues and it 's lively. So I went to New York um, a couple of years ago at the invitation of a cellist uh, who you 'll see in a minute. And I just like this street scene. She has paid a God knows how many dollars for those jeans, which are full of holes and everything. You can see how proud she is of them. I love that. Um, next one. Uh, this is Yo-Yo Ma. Very far-sighting man. <laughs> who decided Indigo was the best subject by far as an educational model for um, deprived, as they call them, underserved schools in New York, to engage the children in their very baggy and huge social services curriculum, social sciences curriculum. He thought the children wear blue jeans... We'll do the whole story. We'll teach everything from Blue Jeans, which is what we tried to do for the next two years. Next one. And it's now moved to Boston. This is launching the project. The British storyteller, that's how it all started. He told a story about Indigo, and Yo-Yo made that mental link between the story and using it for school kids. That's the Chancellor of, New, of Joel Klein of New York City. I see he's now working for Rupert Murdoch. I don't know what that makes him. <laughs> um, And we did this whole presentation to 800 school teachers in New York City, which is quite out of my what they call comfort zone, don't they, I must say. Next one. Uh, This is up in a school in Harlem with Yo-Yo and the team and discussing how the Indigo Project is going to work. Right, quickly whiz the last few. Next one. This is training the teachers. I took all the cloths across with me. They like that. And it's all filmed by National Geographic. You can see it on YouTube. If you look up Silk Road Connect... Uh, you see little clips of this on, on well, it's also modern now, isn't it? Everything's on YouTube or something. I can't get it because I live in the country, and it's too slow. <laughs> Next one. Uh, this is working with the teachers. They loved it, just to, to get the idea of what fun it was. Next one. And I found an indigo dye in New York. Um, this is the maths teacher. Look at this. <laughs> Honestly, and I had the head of education, the whole of education in New York, in New York City, um, was there that day, and she was absolutely so thrilled to do a little sample because it's so exciting to tie up your cloth and put it in a yellow vat and bring it out and open it up and see it turn blue. It's just something very magical, and you're learning about oxygen and chemistry and history and goodness knows what just from something like that. They loved it. Next one. And then the children. Then I found an indigo dye in New York, Linda LaBelle, who could go into the schools every year and work with the children. Next one. And I've seen the letters from the children. I've been sent some of them. And some of them say it's the best day of their school year. They're off their machines and everything else. They're out in the fresh air and they're doing something quite extraordinary with their hands. And they just love it. Next one. Uh, look how wonderful they are. Next one. So finally, we, oh, I invented this thing to do an indigo river timeline. Went, went through the classroom and all the teachers added on their indigo things. Started in the Nile and ended up, started with two pyramids. Um, the you know, Egyptian pyramid and the um, Mayan pyramid and ends up with a pair of blue jeans and you fill in your stuff along the way I made it, up, made it all up on the hoof really <laughs> next one um, and we did a performance in the American Museum of Natural History and some, these kids were doing a performance based on indigo and they put white cloth into a bucket and then pulled out a different one you know, blue one and so on And um, next one and these are the boys doing a fashion show with their indigo dyed (laughs) t-shirts it was just uh, it really got them doing something different next one Uh, and then I did an indigo trail through the Metropolitan Museum for them because the museum's so vast I won't do this in the British Museum by the way Um, so you take your blue jeans and you go around the museum and you look for indigo so Krishna, next one Um, this is sort of cartoon strip in a way because there's a Virgin Mary coming again uh, wearing her indigo robes Vermeer painting, next one uh, Matisse Sailor, Navy Blue, the whole story of the service uniforms, <coughs> Napoleon's General. You can teach the whole of history through these paintings. Next one. Um, oh, the, the Indigo and Madder Army, and then the Modern Army in the First World War. Next one. And then we did a magazine which, um, well, uh, which has a teacher's guide to go with it. And this is in a lot of counties in America now, and they're teaching Indigo using this magazine. Next one. So this is the myth of Indigo next one, these are spreads for the magazine I've got it here if anybody wants to look at it, Uh, Indigo on a Silk Road, next one Uh, I did this for the boys, Indigo for the boys Braveheart (laughs) Um, next one Uh, Confederate Armies Bluebeards, Elvis Presley next one uh, uh, Duke Ellington and so on, Um, Krishna Duke Ellington, how they link up next one Oh, and then I did a shipwreck story for another um, educational magazine in the States called Dig. Next one. That's the story of the shipwreck. And again, we get to the Metropolitan Museum. Next one. Finally, last two slides. Um, The teachers, when we did the teacher training, wrote their comments down as we did it. And this conversation came up. It was absolutely classic. One teacher wrote, I'm concerned about the reference to the indigo god in public schools. What else might we be able to call it? It was too politically sensitive to mention gods. But the other one said, this answer, I think it's okay to refer to the indigo god. Just as we teach students about different religions, um, different cultures and different gods, it's fine. We can start a debate. So actually it turned out that unexpectedly, I didn't know that doing indigo in New York schools was going to actually engage them in debates about god and also about gangs, actually, because the blue and the red gangs in Los Angeles, the whole thing about whether you can wear blue, especially in Los Angeles, uh, because you might be part of the Crips gang as opposed to the Bloods who wear the red. So this whole thing about what color is can come out of, you get quite serious debates out of this small subject. So finally, um, we had a roundup of the teacher training days on this screen here, and the final slide that he put up, was, Is God Blue? And um, (laughs) there we will end. (laughs)